Cluster B personality disorders are characterized by dramatic, overly emotional, and unpredictable thoughts and behavior. From Ars Longa Media, this is Cluster B, scientifically informed, expert insights into the four Cluster B personality types, antisocial, borderline, narcissistic, and histrionic personality disorder. Here's today's host, Dr. Todd Grande. Well, this is Dr. Grande. Today's question asks if I can take a look at a case study that would highlight the potential origins of narcissistic personality disorder. I had another similar question to look at a case study about a mother who had NPD. So I think I may have found a way to really address both questions. So in mental health counseling, case studies are used to train clinicians. A case study starts when a counselor asks a client for consent to take the client's story, like in treatment, and turn it into a report, presentation, part of a training, or otherwise to make it public. If consent is granted, the counselor writes up the report, but still changes certain details to prevent identification of the client. The details that are changed are not supposed to change the essence of the clinical aspects. Even in situations when a client says they're not worried about confidentiality, these precautions are usually still taken. So I've seen these case studies presented in a number of settings, educational, training settings, teaching, research settings. The specific case study I will be reviewing today was originally prepared by a mental health clinician acting as a consultant. So this is someone who is hired to consult to a clinician who is treating the client. It's that client that consented to the case study. So as I mentioned before, the details of this case were changed and all the names have been changed. The reason this case answers both of the questions I mentioned before is because the client in this case, who I refer to as Thomas, was diagnosed with NPD, and his mother appears to have symptoms of this disorder as well. Interestingly, when this case was originally presented, it was not about NPD, but rather the primary diagnosis in the case, which was antisocial personality disorder. But as you'll see when I talk about this case, I think the diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder may have been wrong. Now, of course, we don't know for sure if the mother had NPD, but as I run through this case study, it becomes clear that something is likely happening in the area of narcissism with the mother as well. Two other important notes here. First, even though the details that are changed aren't supposed to change the clinical essence, the information came primarily from one person. Again, the person I'll refer to as Thomas. There's no reason to believe that he was not telling the truth, and there was some corroboration for elements of his presentation. But either way, that's just important to note. Second, the case study is longer than what I'm presenting here in this format. So I tried to pick out the elements that I thought were most important in terms of mental health. So this case study of Thomas occurred when Thomas was about 32 years old. This was his first time in counseling treatment. He was being treated by a female counselor who was between the ages of 55 and 65. Thomas came into treatment because he was struggling to keep a job and a lot of people kept telling him he was arrogant and condescending. He did not think that he was arrogant, but he thought that telling a counselor about how badly other people were treating him may be helpful to him. Thomas's history begins at age seven because he could not recollect any information before that. This is a little bit unusual. So I'll start by identifying some of the key players 
in Thomas's history before I get too far into his story. So we see Thomas's mother, who is about 30 years older than him. I will call her Mary. His father, about 35 years older than him. I will call him Fred. Thomas's sister, 11 years older than him. I will call her Stacy. And Thomas's babysitter, a female, who was one year younger than him. I will call her Betty. So again, Thomas's story starts at age seven. We see here that his sister Stacy moves out of the house. So Thomas lived in the house with Mary and Fred, and Stacy moves out. She moves in with Mary's parents. She was 18 at the time, and Mary's parents, of course, Stacy's grandparents, lived nearby. So for his entire history that he remembers, he doesn't have a sibling living in the same house. Thomas grew up again in his parents' house. It was a three-bedroom house. When his sister moved out, he thought he would get her room, but Mary took that room to put her exercise equipment in. So he really had the same room as we see to age 18. Thomas's father, Fred, worked and his mother, Mary, did not. She stayed at home with him. He reports that his father was largely absent emotionally, but he does not report many negative interactions with him. The vast majority of his interactions were with his mother, Mary. When Thomas was growing up, he was encouraged to spend a lot of time alone in his room. His mother did buy a number of books for him to read, and he did enjoy reading. He had a bedtime of eight o'clock, and this bedtime was in force every night of the week. And it was this way for his entire childhood, although when he turned 14, he didn't have to go to sleep at eight o'clock. He still had to be in his room at eight o'clock. He could go to sleep at 9.30. Now, this bedtime of eight o'clock was strictly enforced, so the family didn't watch television together like in the evening, and they really didn't spend much time together in other ways either. Mary had a rule that the dinner table was only for adults, so Thomas ate dinner in the family room while watching television, and Mary and Fred ate at the dinner table. We see that when Mary and Fred went out to dinner, whether it was fast food or something formal, they did not take Thomas with them, but they would bring something back from the restaurant for him to eat. In addition to the bedtime of eight o'clock, when Mary and Fred had friends over, Thomas was expected to go to bed when those friends arrived, sometimes as early as 6.30 in the evening. Also, Fred was not permitted in the formal living room or in his parents' bedroom. Mary used to tell him to pretend that there was a force field at the entryway to those rooms. So maybe they were fans of Star Trek or Star Wars, I don't know. But he had to kind of treat it as a barrier. He couldn't cross the threshold into those rooms at all. He wasn't even allowed to put his hand into the room. Almost every type of discipline that Thomas received involved going to bed earlier. Physical violence was hardly ever introduced in terms of discipline. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. 
That's a hard no. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Thomas was bullied at school. He was physically small for his age. And because his bedtime was so early, he didn't watch any of the television shows that his classmates watched. And he didn't want to admit that he went to bed that early. So he just said he wasn't interested in television. Thomas was also discouraged from communicating with his mother when other adults were present. He was told that children were supposed to be seen and not heard. And when he would talk, Mary would tell him that he just wasted everybody's time. He was also criticized about his choice of television shows when he watched TV in the afternoon and really criticized about a lot of decisions he would make. So his feelings were really invalidated. When he would want to talk to his mother about his feelings, she would say that, that was not needed and they need to get tougher. Sometimes when he was crying, though, she would pay attention and let him talk. Growing up, Thomas didn't really have a lot of friends at school and he didn't have hardly any friends in the neighborhood. There were a few friends that he had for a year or so, but they would come and go. So for most of the time, he was really alone. We see an incident that Thomas described that occurred when he was about nine years old. It was about eight o'clock at night, so he was going to bed, and he forgot one of his books for school that he wanted to remember for the next day. I guess it was like a book that was due to the library in a school. So he ran down to get it, and his mom caught him, and it was about five minutes after eight. So he was out of his room when it was after eight o'clock. She explained to him that he violated her trust, that she could never believe him again. She felt like she'd just been the victim of a violent crime, and she made him write a hundred sentences saying he would never do that again. He would stay in his room and not come out of it after eight o'clock. She also reported this incident to his teachers, who evidently were supportive of the mother. It was at this time she started to refer to him as a little criminal, and we refer back to this incident several hundred times over the next few years. Sometimes when she referred to the incident, she would start crying. We also see in the history several other incidents when Mary and Fred had guests over. If those guests had children of their own, they would spend time in Thomas's room, kind of playing or talking. We see that if Thomas failed to keep those children from interrupting the adults, when the visit was over, Mary would give those kids some of Thomas's toys. She would do this on the walk out to the car at the end of the visit, and she would say that it was Thomas's idea, so the parents and the children would not object to it. When Thomas was 14 years of age, Mary and Fred hired a 13-year-old babysitter, Betty, which Thomas really resented. He thought he could stay home when Mary and Fred were out in the evening, but they insisted, because of this incident when he was nine years old, that he could not be trusted to go into his room at eight o'clock. The arrangement was tense, but Thomas tolerated until he was about 15. And we see here one night when Betty was watching him, he refused to go into his room at eight o'clock. Betty, who was 14 years old, tried to hit him with a belt to discipline him. Evidently, she had permission to do this from both Mary and Fred. Thomas grabbed the belt out of her hand, and Betty claimed that her hand was injured in that exchange. She called the police 
and Thomas was charged and eventually convicted in a plea deal. He was sentenced to just a few months of probation. Evidently, there was a deal offered where he could have avoided a conviction, but his mother insisted that he turn that deal down and plead guilty. Surprisingly, the court accepted this. Mary evidently also asked the judge if Thomas could be sentenced to jail until he was 18 years of age. Shortly after Thomas turned 18, he came home from school driving a car that his grandparents had given him. These would be Mary's parents. And we see that he finds the contents of his room on the front lawn. Betty, the babysitter who was 17 at this time, had moved into his room. Mary told Thomas that he had been replaced by somebody who could follow the rules. Now, an argument ensued and the police were called again, but Thomas was allowed to move back into the property, but he had to sleep in the basement and store all his stuff in the basement. This arrangement would be in place for the next 10 years. Because of the criminal record that he received when he was 15, Thomas had trouble getting a job. It was a juvenile record, so sometimes it would show up and sometimes it wouldn't, and sometimes employers would care about it and sometimes they wouldn't. But Thomas got into this habit of confessing to employers that he had a criminal record during the interview. So even if they didn't really care or didn't ask for it, he would tell them because he said he couldn't deal with the anxiety of not knowing if they would find out later on. So maybe they would decide to run a criminal record check later on, they would find out and then fire him. That was his concern. By the time he was 28 years of age, he did seem to have stable employment at a retail store and he was forced to move out of his parents' house because Fred ran off with Betty. So his father ran off with the babysitter. Quite a big age difference between them there. Now, the symptoms at the time of assessment, Thomas reports a lot of anxiety, depression, interpersonal problems. He insists that people do not respect him. They don't recognize him as being great, and he really is great. He's frustrated with other people that can't follow the rules. He always shows up to work early and stays until the shift is over, and the other workers do not. And he's been in arguments with these workers about this type of behavior. He reported one argument where a coworker clocked out two minutes before the shift was over. He was also aggravated that his current boss used to bring his daughter into work on some days in the summer. And this was extremely disrespectful to the adult people working there, in Thomas's opinion. In terms of relationships, Thomas reports that he sometimes talks to his sister, Stacy, and occasionally his grandparents. His paternal grandparents had both passed away when Thomas was still an adolescent. He reports no relationship with his mother, his father, or his father's new love interest, Betty, which of course, again, was Thomas's babysitter. Interestingly, the clinician that treated Thomas diagnosed him with antisocial personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, but there was no mention of depression or anxiety. This clinician believed that Thomas was a danger to society. She also believed he should carefully consider whether or not he should ever have kids of his own. She was confused how he could not take any responsibility for his apparent narcissism. But of course, this is how narcissism works. A lack of insight is part of that personality trait and of course, part of NPD. But either way, this is why she actually called for the consult and thought it would be a good idea for this to become a case study. So just an example here of some of her initial experiences with Thomas. There were many presented, but some key ones. At intake, we see Thomas came in and complained that her office was dirty. Again, this is the clinician's office. She was dressed in clothes that were from the 60s. I would presume that 60s occurred many years before this. 
He indicated her staff was rude to him while he was in the waiting room. And he also said that all mental health professionals were losers. So Thomas was really off to a good start, right? It's always important to make a good impression. One thing I find particularly interesting is that the clinician was divorced and did not have any children. And Thomas really seemed to respect this. So eventually, he did end up respecting this clinician, even though he had some initial complaints that I mentioned. So my thoughts on this case, and of course, I can't diagnose anybody here. I'm just speculating on what could be happening in a situation like this. Based on his behavior, I think the NPD diagnosis makes sense, although his narcissism really seems to be more vulnerable than grandiose. But you could certainly make an argument based on his sense of entitlement, requiring admiration, fantasies about success and power, feeling special and unique, and being arrogant. So he has at least five of the nine symptoms of NPD. The diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder really doesn't make sense here. That one arrest and conviction at age 15 is really not enough for this diagnosis, although he was irritable. So I imagine these two things were combined to lead to this diagnosis, even though that is not enough of the criteria for a diagnosis. At intake, he was not impulsive. He was not irresponsible. He did not appear to be lying. But again, we have that irritability component. It's interesting that no diagnosis around anxiety or depression was apparently even considered, even though he complained of both of these. It's not clear what the final disposition was in this case, but evidently he did stay in treatment for several years. In terms of Thomas's mother, Mary, it does seem possible that something was going on here from cluster B personality pathology. We see both narcissistic and borderline traits. It's not clear if she met the full criteria for either of these disorders, but there's a lot of evidence here, of course, that points to these disorders. Overall, this case is a great example of how there are consequences to bad parenting and how emotional damage is real damage. Again, we rarely see any physical component in terms of discipline in Thomas's history, but the emotional damage was quite severe. We see that clinicians can sometimes be overwhelmed by narcissism and their personal bias can really get in the way, especially if they're offended by the person who's narcissistic. Individuals who are narcissistic, of course, do a lot of damage in our society. But looking at a case like this, we can see maybe where some narcissism comes from and understand that their journeys were also difficult. There's an explanation. There's a reason why people become narcissistic. For more content like this, check out Healthy Toxic, another podcast from Ars Longa Media all about what makes or breaks relationships, including issues related to narcissism, narcissistic abuse, and how personality disorders affect relationships. Ars Longa, Vita Brevitz. Learn more at ArsLonga.media. Science! 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 Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist Podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes! Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes! Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes... Yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. 
Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast.